following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. God had great plans for Jacob. But Jacob had his own plans. Jacob wanted the blessing that God promised. But when he didn't see it coming, he grabbed for it himself. No wonder his name was Jacob, meaning heel grabber. Jacob, by very nature, was going to grab for the next big opportunity that would further his own private goals. If he could use God to do that, great. If he used some other means, all right. I'm going to have what I want, Jacob would say. Well, the result was he had to flee from his brother 
who wanted to kill him when he stole the birthright. The Blessing of God And he went to his uncle Laban's house. Now I want you to notice a difference. <clears throat> when Abraham sent out the servant to find a wife for his son Isaac, he sent the bride price. It was a rich bride price. But now, Jacob is being sent to Uncle Laban's, and he's told, take a wife there. But he's sent with the clothes on his back, maybe a little satchel. No bride price, because his father Isaac was angry with him because of how he had deceived him. So in his barrenness, he goes to Uncle Laban's house and there falls in love with Rachel on sight and says, I'll work seven years for her. So now he's going to pay the bride price, seven years of hard labor. <clears throat> of course, he's deceived, and he was given Leah on his wedding night for another seven years, 14 years together. He now has two wives. Things aren't working out so well for Jacob. He's spending long hours laboring for another man, for two wives that are probably fighting with each other in the household. Now, finally, after 20 years, the Lord sends a message to him and says, Go back home. So in Genesis, the 32nd chapter, we find the angels of God met Jacob. He saw them, and he said, This is the camp of God. Now remember, as he was going with just the shirt on his back, he laid down at night, used a stone for a pillow, and God came to him, and he made a deal with God that he would give God a tenth of everything he earned if God would give him clothing and food and shelter. It was a bad deal. God gave that to him. But it wore him out. It exhausted him. So now he's on his way home. He's been directed to go home by God. And Jacob now thinks about his brother Esau, who was threatening 20 years before to kill him. Hasn't heard from him since. Hasn't been home. Now, he decides he'd better do a little pacifying with his brother. He has plenty of money. He has plenty of sheep and goats and camels, donkeys. So, he tells one of his servants, Go to my brother Esau and say, Your servant Jacob says, I've been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maid servants. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. So he's using very humble words. 
he has learned something during these 20 years. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you with 400 men. Hmm. Well, that's the background of today's story. You're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. God has a plan. And he will go to almost any length to get you lined up with him in such a way that he can exercise his will through you. And of course, like Jacob, we want our own way. We want to do things the way we think best. We don't want to wait on God. We know what we want. Let's go after it. And so, in great fear and distress, Jacob figures out a way that he thinks he can pacify his brother. And so he divides the people into two different groups, thinking, okay, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the other group may be able to escape. And then in chapter 32, verse 9, Jacob prays. I want you to hear this prayer. It's a sincere prayer, but it's not a prayer that God will answer. It represents, perhaps, many prayers that you have prayed. Genesis 32, verse 9. O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Amen. You see, Jacob's heart is still all about prosperity. He wants to increase in wealth. That's his love prosperity. And so he prays this prayer, and it's even a bit of a of a humbling prayer, saying, I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you've shown. Yeah, you're right, Jacob. You are very unworthy of all that God has done for you. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers and their children. But you have said, I surely will make you prosper and make your descendants like the sand of the sea. He wants to prosper. He wants to live so he can prosper. He does not want to live so he can do the will of God. God has worked for 20 years in this man's life to try to turn his heart away from prosperity. He's had Laban cheat him time after time after time. But Jacob's heart has remained hard, bitter, angry. 
He's been mistreated. He spent the night there, and from what he had, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, and 20 rams, 30 female camels, and their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. You understand? That's a fortune. They kept their money on the hoof. This was a tremendous amount of money. And he was sending it to his brother Esau, from whom he had stolen the birthright to try to pacify his brother. He said, when he asks, who do these animals belong to? Say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau. He's coming behind us. For he, Jacob, he was thinking, I will pacify Esau with these gifts. Perhaps he'll receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him. But he himself spent the night in the camp. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And after he sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. So now Jacob is left alone without any of his wealth. He now is stripped of everything he has. He has sent it across the stream. And he, on the other hand, is left alone. And it's dark. And he's dwelling in his fear and his concern about what the response will be from Esau. He doesn't know what the outcome of this is going to be. Now, I want you to notice he has prayed a fairly honest prayer. It still reveals his lust for power and possessions. But it was a pretty good prayer for Jacob. The problem is, Jacob does not need to fear his brother Esau. Jacob needs to fear the living God of heaven. Jacob needs to be afraid of God. Now, some interpret the passage differently that I'm going to share with you. Some say that it's probably just a spiritual in-his-head experience. I don't believe that because that's not what the scriptures say. I'm going to go strictly by what the scriptures say. That has to be my base authority. But I'm going to share with you what happens. He's left alone. And a man, it says, wrestled with him till daybreak or fought with him. 
Now, most wrestling matches are not going to last more than 10 or 15 minutes, and both men are exhausted. Jacob was a very, very strong man. Remember when he met Rachel? All the shepherds were waiting for enough men to come together, and they could all together roll the stone away from the well. When Jacob saw Rachel, he ran forward, and he, by himself, removed the stone. Jacob was a powerful man. And suddenly, in the dark, a hand is put on him, and he fears that it is Esau who has found him, and he begins to fight with this man. I'm sure the only sounds that could be heard were the animal sounds of extreme exertion, extreme struggle, gasping, hitting, falling to the ground, rolling, wrestling, struggling, with iron grips trying to win, trying to survive. His very life is now threatened. Now, after this extended physical battle, the man saw that he could not overpower Jacob. Jacob was not going to settle down and say, Uncle. No matter how he was hurt, no matter how many times he was thrown down and pinned, he would break it and get loose. He was not going to be overcome. So this man reached out and touched the socket of Jacob's hip. And his hip was so wrenched, so thrown. It was so painful. It suddenly dawned on Jacob that he was struggling with God himself, that the Christ incarnate was there before the incarnation. This is the pre-incarnate Christ who has come and is wrestling with Jacob. And the man says to him, Let me go, for it is daybreak. They're clutching. Jacob is in intense pain. He can't fight on any longer. But with iron grip, he holds on to this man. And Jacob says to this man, through clenched teeth, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asks him, What is your name? Jacob, heel grabber, he answered. And the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, meaning overcomer, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. 
He's saying, Jacob, you've struggled with me. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to give you a new name. Meaning overcomer. Jacob, recounting this, says in verse 30, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. My life was spared. Now let's look at this. The enemy that heel grabber has to be afraid of is not his brother Esau. It's God himself. We get things mixed up. We think somebody's our enemy. But God's in charge. And he's working everything out according to his will, according to what he desires, according to what he wants. He knows the plan. The difficulty that God is having with Jacob is he can't get Jacob into a position where he'll finally be still and give up his lust for prosperity long enough to hear what God wants to say to him. And the only way he can get Jacob to quiet down is to fight with him physically. That's all Jacob understands. And so God comes and fights with him physically. The greatest problem God has with you and with me is to get us into a place where we will stop fighting with him and say, Lord, would you just bless me? Would you just bless me? Would you tell me what your will is? Would you open the doors of understanding in my heart? I tell you, last night I was so excited I could barely sleep. I kept waking up all night. I was exhausted and I needed to sleep because I knew this broadcast was coming. But every time I woke up, I went into prayer. What am I excited about? Because I have been given a new revelation of God's power. I've been given a new revelation of how God functions with us. He wants us to wait before him, focused on his will, asking him what he wants, and giving up our own pride and our own arrogance and our own independence and utterly subduing and submitting to the mighty God of heaven, subduing that rash, hostile, defensive nature that always wants to be in charge and protect and guard myself. I have so many things to pray about. I began to list them all out. It was a long list. I took them before the Lord. And I said, Lord, now would you begin to order all of these things and tell me how to pray? 
I will wait before you until you tell me which one to pick up and which one to wait upon you for and which one would be according to your will. Well, I have some personal issues that I thought were very important. The Lord said, lay those down. Yes, Lord. Then I had some some concerns for radio and finances. In fact, today I was scheduled to do an offertory for the money of needed, necessary to pay the January radio bill. The Lord said, lay that aside. All he wanted me to do was wait before him for a precious brother for their healing and their restoration for their direction. And so I waited before the Lord through the hours of the night and then this morning as I came into the prayer closet I only want to pray what the Holy Spirit gives me to pray because that's the only prayer he'll answer. I don't want God to have to come and wrestle with me. I don't want God to have to fight with me. Now, in this story, He said, I saw God face to face, yet my life was spared. God doesn't always fight physically. There are other ways he can fight. He can dry up the finances. Oh, it's the devil. The devil brings poverty. But God can use that. Everything is under the direct hand of God. Satan can't touch you without Jesus' permission. He can only go as far as the Lord gives him the authority to go. Do you understand? God is trying to get you into a position where you can hear him clearly and submit to him. He wants to break the stubborn pride and unbelief. Pride and unbelief go hand in hand. Part of my excitement, and I have to tell you this, the Lord has been so gracious to me, and he's answered so many of my prayers, and he has been carrying me so magnificently for these last months that have been most difficult in my life. But last night as I was praying, I had the strangest experience. I became consciously aware of God placing his armor on me. Now usually we talk about you put on the armor of God. Last night God was pinning and buckling and 
putting his armor on me. And I was reveling in the reality that nothing is too hard for God. That he has all things in his hands. He controls all things. I can absolutely trust him for physical healing. I can absolutely trust him to work out whatever's necessary in my home and where I live. I can trust him to work out everything necessary in the lives of those I love dearly. I can trust him to work out everything for this radio broadcast. I can trust him to work out everything for revival in Washington, D.C. And as the Lord buckled this armor on me, I felt absolutely like I could not be touched by the devil. I knew the hand of God. I knew the face of God. And I rejoiced. I shouted before him, praise and thanksgiving. Now Jacob, he crossed over the brook. He's limping. The tendon has been broken in his hip to the socket of the hip. He can barely walk. I'm sure he was filthy dirty. Clothes were probably torn. He's a mess. He looks up and he sees the dust coming from the hooves of the horses. He's coming with 400 men. So he quickly divides the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maidservants. He orders them as he chooses. And then he goes forward in front of everybody. And he bows down to the ground seven times in perfect submission to his brother. What does Esau see? Well, I think it's probably a mixture, and the Bible doesn't say this, but I think I have enough evidence from other portions of Scripture I can safely say this. Esau, in the physical realm, is pretty well beat up. And he can barely walk. He can barely fall down to the ground and get up again. He is the epitome of weakness. Wow, can God use a man who is that weak? Whose strength is broken, whose pride has been put in the dust. This man now is in a position where God can begin to use him. I could give you story after story after story. From the New Testament, Peter, Paul, most of all Jesus, as he is crucified, utterly humbled, utterly humbled, 
This is where the power of God can begin to move. Please understand when I say this. If you escape every time God tries to get a hold of you, if you're so full of yourself and your pride and your arrogance and your hardness and your meanness, if you're so full of you that you duck and dodge God, he may have to bring about very radical circumstances in your life if he intends to use you or he may simply let you go. But I will guarantee you that no one is going to be used to any extent with God who has not had a fight with God. How many times I have accused God of being unfair? How many times I've been angry with God about my circumstances, the painfulness of what's going on, and begin to complain and play the victim role. That's when the fight with God really starts. And he begins to say, be responsible, Ray. Be responsible for yourself and your actions. Admit your guilt. Stop blaming somebody else. Stand up. Oh, how important it is that we cooperate with God as he tries to maneuver us into positions where we can be dealt with. For some, that process is going to take years. It did for Jacob. It took 20 years, plus this struggle in the desert before Jacob could even begin to be where God could use him. So Jacob walks forward, limping, falling. Esau climbs off his horse. And he runs and embraces Jacob. He threw his arms around him. And he began to kiss his precious brother Jacob. This is not the Jacob that he knew that he wanted to kill. This is a broken Jacob. This is a humble Jacob. This is Israel, the overcomer, who's been blessed by God. And the two of them stand there with their arms around each other, weeping, crying, He tries to give back all of the animals that Jacob has given him. And Jacob says, Oh no, if I found favor in your eyes, accept the gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you've received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And Esau accepted it. What does God need to do in your life to get you to let go 
of lusting after money. To loosen your purse and give to the poor and give to the work of the gospel. I'm so excited about some of you today who have given so generously to Pilgrim's Progress. And what excites me the most is one of you always sends a note and you say, for the work of the gospel. I'm sending this for the work of the gospel because you love Jesus. No strings attached. I'm giving it for the work of the gospel. Is your heart hard today? I want to share with you a modern-day story. I think it will help you understand what I'm trying to say to you today. And again, this is a story from the book Remarkable Incidents and Modern Miracles Through Prayer and Faith by C.G. by G.C. Bevington. He's been told to go to a certain place by the Lord to hold a series of meetings. So as he goes, he's handing out tracts, gospel tracts, and inviting people to come to the meeting. So he knows that he has to go to a certain home, a Mr. R, who has the key to the schoolhouse. I'll pick up the story there. I stopped in the next house and gave out some tracts. I then inquired where Mr. R lived. The woman said, in the second house on the right. I thanked her and started on. Then she said, aren't you a preacher? I answered, yes, ma'am. Well, are you going to hold a meeting in the schoolhouse? I expect to, I replied. Oh, I do hope that you can. But. There it was again, that but. Well, I wasn't running on butts, so on I went. I soon saw the house and the large barn on the left, and I saw a great big fellow out in the truck patch cutting weeds as there had been much rain and he could not plow his corn. I sat my suitcase down and said, Good morning. He looked up, responded cordially. I said, is this Mr. R? Well, yes. What of it? Well, I said, I'm a holiness evangelist. Before I could finish the statement, he'd straightened up on his hoe handle and said, A what? A holiness evangelist, said I. He repeated it and then said, I've seen all sorts of evangelists, but I don't believe that I ever saw one by that name. Well, sir, just come out here and look a holiness evangelist right in the two eyes. He came out to the fence. Well, what do you want of me? Well, sir, I want to get in that schoolhouse that you have control of and hold some meetings and get someone saved and organize a Sunday school. Well, sir, I'd be delighted to unlock the door and let you in for a good purpose, but my near sir, they have notified me from the giant on the throne that I must not unlock that door for preaching, as the benches are just about all whittled up. I'm sorry, 
but I can't unlock the door. As my wife, I know, would be real glad, and she would take hold and help. I'm no account at that. But as it's about dinner time, why don't you come on up to the house and have some dinner with us? So we went. The wife felt so bad because John would not open the door. Nothing was said about his authority or power, but the meeting hinged on that door, and it was an all-important item the next nine days. Well, when dinner was over, he said, Mister, I was down at the mill three or four weeks ago, and a friend, a trustee over at the other road, told me that they'd just finished their new schoolhouse, and if I should run on to a preacher to send him over that he'd like to have a meeting there and have a Sunday school started. So he led me out onto the porch and said, That place is Pumpkin Hollow. You go back down the road until you come to the first pair of bars on your left. Turn in there and cross the bottom, go up a hill and follow that road down across another hollow through a strip of woods and on. Tis three miles. Well, I must go up the road, he said, and I hope you'll have a good time over at Pumpkin Hollow. So I picked up my suitcases and said, Pumpkin Hollow, hey? Yes, but isn't, that's not what I'm after. So down the road I started and said, Well, Lord, where am I going? What's that to thee? Follow thou me, came as the only answer. So I kept going and I soon came to a hill, a long one on the right, when a voice said, This path is the way. So up that impressive hill I started with my two suitcases. Well, Lord, where in the world am I going? What's that to thee? So up I went, asking no more questions. Finally I reached the summit of the hill and dropped the suitcase under a large oak tree, and the same voice came. This is the place. Now I want to remind you that the hindrance to having the meeting was the locked door. So I just stayed under that tree nine days and nights. I had nothing to eat. I did not want anything. As I got such a burden to get that door unlocked, for I knew that God had sent me there to hold a meeting, and now Satan was hindering. My business now was to pray that door open, as "'twould be of no use to try to break it down "'and to go off or give up. "'It would be disobeying God "'or disregarding His wish or orders. "'You may ask, "'why did it take nine days to get an answer?' "'Now I want you to hear "'why it took nine days to get an answer. "'He says, "'Simply because I could not get small enough any sooner. After the first 24 hours, Satan came down and argued the situation. I had a conflict with him most every day. Then he brought up Pumpkin Hollow as a much better sight than this was, where I was laying under a tree contracting a cold that would break up all the meetings for the year and probably land me in a grave prematurely. It had rained three times while I was under that tree, waiting to get that door opened. 
So it was one thing and then another for the eight days and nights. So on the beginning of the ninth day, I began to see that I was getting still. And at the fifth hour of that day, I rose from off my face and held up the Bible, praising God that the door was going to be opened, and said, Now, Mr. Devil, if you have any more material down in hell, just bring it on. I had met every objection that he had, offered with the word, and, sir, he could not rake up another problem. They had all been exhausted. He was completely whipped. So I dropped down again on my face, feeling sure that I was near the door's opening, and at noon I saw that I was actually getting still. And oh, how desirous I was to keep still. I did not want to even breathe. I held my breath and would just be about able to reach that door. So I kept getting smaller and smaller, smaller and smaller, until I saw myself as a little worm not over an inch long. And I began to say, Glory, glory, very softly. I repeated it and saw that I was not losing ground, but but rather I felt assured the victory was near. At 2.15 p.m., I was oh so still and said, Now, Lord, thou wilt open that door. Suddenly I heard a key go into the lock, and I heard it turn, and I saw the door open, and as it opened it left a circling mark where it rubbed on the floor. I said, Oh, glory, it's open. But I felt that inasmuch as this meeting had been such a hard pull from the start, back there when I was in the woods, that I had a right to do as Gideon did and ask for two witnesses. So I dropped on my face and I said, Now, Lord, thou didst answer twice for Gideon, and thou wilt for me. I settled down and in fifteen minutes was as small as before, and in five minutes more I heard the same as before and I saw the mark on the floor plainly. Then I jumped up, looked at my watch, and saw that it was twenty-five minutes of three. I stood there praising God for the wonderful victory of the nine days' conflict, picked up the suitcase, and went down the hill. I saw Mr. R. out in the truck patch, and he saw me and hollered, Well, how was it in Pumpkin Hollow? I made no reply to that, and he said, You had a good time, I reckon. I said, I've been having a fine time. Well, I knew you would, he said. Well, we just got through dinner. Go up to the house and get something to eat. So in I went, and his wife said, Oh, I'm so glad to see you, she said. While we were eating dinner, John had to get up three times to answer the phone relative to the meeting here. Now, please note that in the first place, I did my duty in giving out tracts all along the 22-mile trip and telling the people what I wanted. So God then had some foundation to work on. As soon as I reached that tree, God began to work on these people, and through them by having them phone Mr. R. as to the meeting. And then as I began to get still up there under the tree, 
God had three of them call him again and remind him that they ought to have a meeting there. Well, he got tired of that and said, after answering the third call during dinner, Wife, how is Nance? Nance was the bald-faced mare that had been crippled about two weeks and was on the pasture. Why, said the wife, she's all right. I saw her running and kicking up her heels just before dinner. Well, they said, you get Frank, their boy, ten-year-old. Tell her, tell him to bring her up and put the saddle on her and go over to Pumpkin Hollow and tell the preacher that as soon as he gets through there to come over. So when he said that he saw me, there I was. Now someone asked, what is the witness? Well, here was the witness in this case, the witness, the evidence that my petition was answered. I was there nine days to get that door open. And as soon as Mr. R. gave his consent, then God gave me this witness. After I'd done justice to a fine meal, Mr. R. gave me the key to go down and unlock the schoolhouse to air it out. They phoned around that there would be a meeting that night. As I passed Mr. R. in his truck patch, he said, Will you go down? There may be some women and children out. We menfolk are after the foxes as they've gotten to killing off our chickens. So we met and organized a fox band. I'm their captain. Well, I don't have time to share all of this with you. But I wanted you to hear that nine days. Here's the problem. We are all much too big and much too full of us and our plans. And if we're going to get to God, we're going to have to get alone and get quiet and wait before him. Now, for Jacob, that meant a bitter battle. It may mean that for you as well. Or you may go through, as he did, 20 years of Uncle Laban. I pray none of you will have to go through 20 years of Uncle Laban. But if you want God, you're going to have to get small and quiet and seek him with all of your heart and he'll be found by you. Do you want God? Do you want Jesus' blessing on your life? You're not going to get it by these polite little religious prayers. You're going to have to get serious with Jesus. You're going to have to give up your own plans. You're going to have to carve out time to wait on the Lord. You're going to have to turn off your television and your entertainment and many of your other engagements and wait before God. Wait before God. You're going to probably end up in a fight with God. Maybe you're already in a fight today with God. All you have to do is stop the fight, hang on to Jesus and say, Oh, God, bless me. I put my sword down. I put my pride down. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you.
Jesus, I need you. And wait on him. And he'll wait on you. He will meet you. Oh, Lord. I pray for those who have listened to this broadcast today that they would not write it off as foolishness. But they would hear the word of the Lord. That you are worth waiting for. And that you want us to get small enough that we can see how big you are and trust you and believe in you and obey you. Thank you, Jesus, I pray in your name. Amen. Well, I'd like to hear from you. You can write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia. Again, it's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Go to our webpage, and I thank several of you for doing that this week. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, and just click on the Donate button. And join me in prayer that God will cover and bring revival to Washington, D.C. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, Greenlight. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. God bless you. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless. For the presence of His glory